Hello, everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith. Uh, sorry that we just had a little technical difficulty with our opening theme song, but we are here today, so we're just going to get into our program. Uh, I'm Kirk Hastings, and uh, our regular co-host, Keith Kendricks, is on vacation this week. So we have a special guest for you who we'll be talking to in just a minute. Uh, also, I'd like to remind you that this is a program that presents the historical, archaeological, and scholarly evidences for the historic Christian faith based on the documents of both the Old and the New Testaments. And uh, I'm sure our regular listeners are well aware of that, but just for you new listeners, that's uh, the topic of our program. And as I said, today we have a special guest, a Mr. Kevin Harold, who... Uh, if you listened to our program last week, Keith uh, was able to briefly interview him on the program, and we have him for the entire hour this week. So, hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. Good afternoon. And uh, this uh, Mr. Harold has a very interesting uh, life story here, and he's got quite a bit of experience in a, a number of different areas. Uh, he is currently an airline pilot with airlines. That's correct. And uh, looking at your uh, bio here that I have in front of in front of me, I'm not going to read all of this because we take up half the program with it. But you've got quite a background here. Uh, it uh, indicates that you have, uh, of course, you're retired from the United States Air Force. Uh, you've been a flight engineer. Uh, you've uh, worked in some different places, uh, Iceland, Georgia, Virginia, I see here, as a an aircraft support equipment mechanic. Yeah, that kind of got me into the uh, aviation side of life. As a mechanic, I'd often stand there and watch the airplanes fly and thought, wow, now there's a job I'd want to do. Okay. And uh, through some time, now I'm doing that job. So you uh, worked your way up there from there, basically, to become a pilot. Is that how it worked? Yes. When one has a very patient wife, uh, one can spend <laughs> a lot of time, education and training, and then putting in your, what we call the dues, mm -hmm. uh, flying, instructing, and all those things until you get an opportunity. And I've had a lot of blessings and a lot of opportunities, and now I get to fly for a living. That sounds good. Uh, you, uh, from some of the material that you've given me here, it sounds like you see a lot of different places in the world. You fly uh, overseas, internationally? Right now I mainly fly, when we say internationally, it's mainly Mexico and Caribbean. Okay. In my Air Force career, I was uh, all over the place. I think the only places that I didn't get to was uh, New Zealand, Japan, and Australia. But uh, a lot of other places... A lot of hot places, actually, yeah. I've been to. Okay. And uh, it also says here that you are a karate instructor. <laughs> yes, my wife and I have been in that for several <laughs> decades. Uh, had some karate schools. You've been married for 29 years? Have you <laughs> ever gotten into any uh, uh, karate fights <laughs> in that time? <laughs> um, I won't say. However, I will say that I'm a very obedient husband. Okay, that helps. <laughs> and uh, you have a couple of grown children here. I see a couple of daughters, and you live in Hamilton. That's correct. Which is probably how you came into contact with Keith, who also lives there. Yes, in fact, Keith and I go to the same church, uh, Victory Bible, there in Hamilton. Okay. And, uh, actually, my daughter connected me up with Keith. Okay, sounds good. 
before we uh, continue, I'd also like to remind our listeners that uh, you can check out podcasts of our previous programs if you're interested in listening to those on our website, which is located at www.evidencethenumber4faith.com. You can also listen to podcasts of our programs on iTunes, and you can even email us. If you have some questions for us, feel free to email us. Our address is uh, email at evidencethenumber4faith.com. And uh, so that's how you can keep in touch with us. Now, uh, let's get into uh, our interview here. Um, Kevin has given me a uh, document here on some of his uh, um, experience with uh, Christianity, how he got interested in it, and uh, uh, let's get into some of that. Um, You also, I see here, have a degree in apologetics. That's correct. Uh, we were talking earlier. I joked that my one of my hobbies is collecting degrees. You've and, got a few here from your bio. <laughs> right. But I was thinking more like all but the apologetics degrees were degrees designed to uh, for career advancement to help me get a job, whereas the degree in apologetics, I like to say, was a degree of desperation. And I'd like to explain that over the rest of the program, just what I mean by the word desperation. Okay. Um, I see here you have a not only a master's in apologetics from Luther Rice University, you have a master's in aviation operations, a bachelor in business management, an associate in management, and an associate in technology for the U.S. Air Force. That's quite an educational background. Like I said, my wife's been very patient with me. I can see that. (laughs) Does she ever see you? (laughs) Uh, A lot more now, actually, than did uh, in the Air Force. uh, You're still a young man, so you wouldn't remember, but way, way back before there were cell phones. Oh, say it's not so. Before there was even calling cards, there was just those regular things they used to call a phone. And... When I left on a mission, my wife would not hear from me until I got back into base ops at the end of the mission, where it was two days, three days, two weeks, three weeks. Right. And uh, so she has been very, very um, patient with me as far as being away. But now I call her almost every time I land. Sure. Moderns of technology. Right. You can text and you can call her on the cell phone and... Right. Right to her Facebook page and do all kinds of stuff now. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's get into um, your conversion experience. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first became a Christian? Actually, my conversion experience came as a result, uh, like I was conveying last week, uh, from a crisis in the fact that my mother died of cancer. She was quite riddled with it, and after a long-suffering uh, illness, she passed away, and over time, after a while, my father started dating uh, this other lady. And being that, like I said last week, that we were a father and two sons, the house was a shambles, and she would come in and cook for us. And while she was, like I said, stirring the pot, she was stirring the heart of a young man, the heart and his mind. And when I went to her church, I heard some very radical things. Because before that time, I remember thinking that it was the scale effect, that if I had just one more good deed than my bad deeds, then God would let me into heaven. 
and I found out that was nothing at all what it was. Mm. And that just one bad deed, one sin, disqualifies a person from heaven, but God in his mercy takes the place of the sacrifice, the payment for that sin. And so when I heard that message, it was like brand new to me, and it suddenly made sense. And then I gave my heart to Christ, became converted. There's many different ways to phrase that. And from that point on, for about 15, 20 years, I had what I call a vibrant faith. When I read the Word of God, it seemed to leap off the page to me, Mm -hmm. uh, make sense. Uh, When I prayed, well, I didn't hear any audible voices, but it seemed like there was feedback. There was a, I would pray, then God would guide me. And most importantly, my life changed in in a significant, noticeable way. So... That's my way of saying that my conversion was genuine and real. So I gather from what you're saying that you went to church for years before this conversion experience happened. Right. Like I said, I I remember sitting in English class once looking at the clock when I should have been paying attention, daydreaming. I did a lot of that in school. So did I. (laughs) And wondering if I had enough good points to make it into heaven. Hmm. So... Was it me that I didn't listen? Was it the church? I don't know, and it's not my place to make that accusation. But all I know is when I heard the truth, it was so remarkable and so startling to me that I couldn't deny it and I couldn't walk away from it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Just to put this into context about how old were you when this conversion experience took place? Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Now, you say that uh, you experienced a very vibrant faith and close fellowship with God for quite some time after that. Uh, But then some doubts started to creep in. Tell us about that. Right. Exactly why, what sparked it, I'm not really sure. But like a seed growing, uh, doubt just started, and it was very small, more like a nuisance at first. But over time, it started to grow and grow and become more and more prevalent and more and more troublesome to me. Um, Was there really a God? Who was he? And why did I start having these doubts after such a long period of what I call blissful existence as a Christian? Mm -hmm. And these doubts grew, like I said, and it even got to the point where it went past annoying. It became problematic to the point where I call this period uh, about 15, 16 years of doubt that I went through. Uh, the blackness is in one being in a deep, dark pit, looking up and not even be able to see the light. Hmm. And so I didn't know what to do. Do you remember anything specifically that started these doubts? Or was it just kind of a generalized thing that happened over a period of time? I couldn't put my finger on anything exactly what would spark it. I do know how it manifested itself in the sense of doubting God's existence, wondering, you know, if God really exists or doesn't exist, what does that mean about the truth of Christianity? Mm -hmm. What does that mean about the truth of the Bible? Right. Did you, uh, I assume you were going to a church at the time, did you talk to your pastor or any of the people in your church about this? Uh, Yes, Um, I talked to quite a few people. In fact, during the period of this despair, this blackness, over the many years, I probably wore out many people's ears (laughs) 
Um, I tend to like to talk things out. Mm-hmm. And so I went to many, many people and many after different types of advice. But uh, one part that was really significant to me and it bears in later on is in the process of time I went to, we were had to change to another church and I was going in to see the head pastor for a couple times and that worked out okay. But it's when I went in the third time and I asked for him and he wasn't there. And they said there was a the new assistant pastor there. And I thought, oh great, second <laughs> fiddle. How good could he be? And I'm apologizing to all the associate pastors out there. That's a disclaimer. But <laughs> that's what I thought. But, right. you know, he came in, and I told my story to him, and I thought he was going to do what normally happens, that he was going to give me a Bible verse, a nice religious slogan, pat me on the head and send me on my way. Mm-hmm. But he said something truly wild, truly almost heretical for a pastor. He said, I don't know, Kevin. Hmm. but I'll go through it with you. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the best thing I ever did was that he went through this period with me. He was honest with you. He was honest. If he didn't have an answer, he just said, I don't know the answer to that question. And, Let's and see if we can find it. Uh, in fact, uh, the inside joke is he's quite a professional at not knowing. He, <laughs> that's how he always come off so well is he always have other people answer uh, and I say that humorously because I really <laughs> admire him he's a huge influence in my life um, but in that process uh, hours and hours years I mean years and years this man invested in my life hmm. listening to all my whining complaining about God and how God didn't answer and God abandoned me mm-hmm. and all those things yeah wow so uh, what did you do from that point? How did you uh, start to work through these doubts? And that's uh, a very good way to put it, work through it. I like to humorously say that I was a member of the Manly Man Society, and <laughs> I'm sure you know that men are doers. We don't like to sit around when we have a problem. We want to go do something about it. So I figured that I would very quickly, in a space of a month or two, just get a book, read about this, and all the doubts would be obliterated, and I would get to return to that blissful state that I was before. So I got the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, by Josh McDowell. I'm very familiar with that book. Yes, and I'm sure you're familiar. That's not a totally easy book to read. No. In the sense of there's so much stuff in there, so much uh, data and information and references uh, it isn't like he just sat down and whipped something out, mm-hmm. but he really researched, and that was just remarkable to me, and that kind of like opened the door to search the, call the intellectual side, the reasoning side of mm-hmm. Christianity. Had you not dealt with this, like the intellectual side of it before that? Was that part of maybe what started causing you doubts because you didn't have the answers to a lot of questions? That would be a good uh, question. I don't know if it exactly was that way or the questions came after the doubt, but you are correct in that there wasn't a lot of exposure back then to the apologetical side, right? the reasoning side. 
and it was more or less like kind of to use the phrase I heard sometimes you just need to believe because you just need to believe right and when I started to get into some of these things it was like Christmas presents like wow this stuff there's some really uh, deep thinkers on this stuff mm -hmm. so uh, as you're saying this, it's, uh, I'm thinking that this kind of, in a sense, parallels uh, what happened to me. I was basically, I grew up non-churched, as mm. they say. Uh, my father was an atheist, and he didn't want any of his children to go to church. So uh, myself and my older brother and my older sister never really went to church. So I grew up uh, basically in ignorance of religion mm. in general. I didn't know anything about any religions. I mean, kids would come up to me and say, what religion are, are you? And I would be like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, are there different kinds? I, you know, I didn't have any answer right. to that question. And uh, I was suddenly faced with the question of the Bible and Christianity and all that when I was in my mid-20s. I came into contact with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, if yes, you're familiar yes. with them. And... Uh, they started asking me questions like, well, what do you think of the Bible, or what do you think of Jesus Christ, or whatever, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know anything about these things. I just, you know, didn't have any antagonism, it's just that it didn't mean anything to me. And uh, they started talking to me about it, and I, I was like, well, you know, this sounds okay, but, you know, there are so many different religions in the world. How do yes. I know that what you're telling yes. me is the right one and, yes. you know, what this other guy wants to tell me is the wrong one? It's like, you know, I'm not going to involve my life in this if I don't know that I've got the right thing. And one of the early books that I read was Evidence That Demands a Verdict because I wanted to know from the get-go, you know, what's the basis of this? How right. how can anybody say Christianity is, is more true than the other religions are? And I started reading books of that kind. And you have some books on your, uh, your list here that are similar to mm -hmm. the ones that I read, such as Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has been one of my favorite Christian authors since the beginning and uh, I kind of got into the apologetics part from the beginning because I wanted okay. to know okay what's the basis for this stuff mm. and uh, that is an excellent book and I'm, I'm assuming that you're you're referring to the original edition of it he later came out with a second edition and now there's a combined edition with both books in one book that's like 706 pages long I have two volumes right my uh, and that was back around 95 96 right that i purchased them so i couldn't tell you uh, much to my wife's again patience i have more books than i'll probably ever get to read <laughs> and i love to collect more uh -huh. so. <laughs> i've got a few myself believe me but uh, yeah and one of the interesting things that i i related to in that book was that uh, in the beginning, Josh McDowell relates his story, and he was an atheist. I mean, he was an out-and-out -out atheist, you know, like a, a, a militant atheist almost. Yeah. And he decided one day that he was going to set down and write a book to disprove Christianity. Mm. So that, you know, let's get rid of this ridiculous belief once and for all. And he started doing the research for it. And the more research he did, the more he was like, wow, this stuff makes sense. 
and he finally came out the other end a Christian because the evidence literally convinced him that it was true. And then he ended up writing the book he ended up with, which, of course, supports Christianity. So I related to that. It was like, you know, I started out with no belief, and it's like, you know, okay, where do I go from here? And here's this guy who basically started out to disprove this, and the evidence literally turned him around. So, And these are pertinent-type questions, pertinent in the sense that uh, if you have doubts about the existence of... Uh, I was going to say Pluto, but I guess they took that away from us now. <laughs> Doubts about the existence of Mars or Jupiter, it really isn't going to have that much ramifications on your life. Right. But doubting or not knowing whether God exists, whether Jesus Christ was true historical person, and what he did and said was really what he did and said, mm -hmm. and whoa, his going to the cross, whether that was needed or mm -hmm. not, these are questions that cannot be ignored, should not be ignored. No. Uh, not just from a society, but more importantly from a person, as your experience has shown you. Yeah. Um, another one of the things that did it for me was I, I found myself really drawn to the fact that Christianity was rooted in history. Mm, There's yes. actual history, like Jesus Christ was not a vague his, uh, religious figure. He was an actual historical person who lived at a certain time in a certain place, and, you know, people knew him, and they wrote down what he said, and it was like, wow, you know, this this is not only just religion, it's literally history. Correct. Yeah. And those combination of those two makes Christ stand so tall and something that one cannot easily or should not so easily scoff off. Mm-hmm. Well, that was one of the things that that helped me along was uh, the historical basis of it also, and that it's it's such well-documented history. You know, I've, I've probably got a library of a couple hundred books myself, and most of them are apologetics-types books on the archaeological evidence, the historical evidence, the, you know, how the Bible was put together, how we know we got the right documents, um... And like you, when I found out that there was actually documentation of all this stuff, I was amazed that, wow, it's not a case of you just have to believe because you just have to believe. There's actually something there to base your beliefs on. Right. And to, to me, that's one of the things that makes Christianity stand out from most other religions is that historical basis that it's it's um, has as a foundation that we can go back to these historical records. And a lot of other religions and philosophies can't do that. So I see in your, uh, your little bio here that you apparently uh, had a point where you got to where you were questioning um, unanswered prayer. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? I often remark that experientially during this period uh, obviously one of the things besides doing the studying was I was praying constantly literally begging God to uh, sweep away these doubts mm -hmm. to um, show himself to me uh, to prove these things that I had questions about to prove his existence mm -hmm. and but what I say is it felt like when I prayed, the prayers would go up, hit the ceiling, and fall back down. Mm -hmm. um, my friends would say, well, you weren't quiet enough. 
and I would often pray and be quiet. And after a while, I'd be start thinking about what I needed to pick up at the supermarket. And I would like, you know, shake myself. So distractions. distractions. So it kind of <laughs> added to the despair in that not only did I have doubts, but now I had on an answered prayer. And it felt like God had turned his back on me. Mm-hmm. Now that, from what I have read in different uh, accounts of different Christians' lives, that is not an unusual occurrence. It, it's no. it's not like, you know, oh, you become a Christian, and from that moment forward, all your prayers get answered, and your life straightens out, and everything's perfect from that point forward. Um, some people think that that's how it works, but it doesn't. And I think some some of us, including me, when I was a young Christian, had some of those expectations, and when mm-hmm. they didn't work out, it's like, okay, what's wrong here? Correct. You know, um, the first thing you think is, well, maybe this stuff isn't true after all, or yes. maybe God isn't there, or, yes. you know, you have all these doubts about, you know, if this isn't working, it's it's because the problem is on God's end, but you don't necessarily think, well, what if the problem's on my end? And you have to consider that possibility. Maybe I'm not doing something right, or maybe my expectations are not realistic. And... Um, I think many Christians go through that phase where they become a Christian. They they have a period of uh, some people would call it grace, where you know it's like everything is great and this is terrific and wow, I found the answers to everything. But then you start hitting walls where like this expectation didn't get met and this one doesn't and this one doesn't and then the doubts start to creep in. Why isn't this working? And then you either, I think, have two ways to go at that point. The one way is to just give up on it. The other way is to try to figure out why isn't this working and look for answers, which sounds like is what you chose to do. Right. And I actually, in reading the book, studying and uh, sharing my thoughts uh, in endless, 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 endless pages with uh, my friend Mike Renz, I was seeking to do that and basically started out, once again, thinking that I would resolve this in a couple months, mm-hmm. uh, starting out like with the arguments for the existence of God and that which is a basic or classical type philosophical or metaphysical type of ideology within apologetics. Uh, but I never heard this stuff before. And it was, like I said, like Christmas time. And I realized that these arguments, while formally proof, and a lot of times in their effect, you're not going to just like plop them down on the table before a skeptic and think he's going to go, oh, wow, wow, you're right, I give up. But it takes time <laughs> to process them. Right. And I remember like starting out, like there's a whole bunch of here, and I just real briefly highlight some of them, like the experiential argument for the existence of God and this is kind of called a more internal thing or a believer would say, I know that God exists because I just know. Or he rescued me from this traffic accident. Or when I pray, he answers me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have that type of experience during the doubt. So I acknowledged this one, but it didn't ring a bell. Or the moral argument, which basically is a, an argument that says that there's a being who's the embodiment of the ultimate good, a source of a 
subjective moral values versus just something that we say morals are something per each culture uh, to which one could, I've heard it said by Ravi Zacharias, in some cultures you greet your neighbor with a hug and some cultures you eat your neighbor. <laughs> Do you have a preference? <laughs> But I've never heard it quite put that way, but that's that's a straightforward. <laughs> right. So uh, to ring the bell of it's all cultural uh, could get you in trouble, literally. But I was thinking that what an understanding of the moral argument is that there is some things, and C.S. Lewis so well captured this, that transcend culture. Like, for example, he spoke of how a traitor is not respected in any culture, mm-hmm. uh, virtually any culture. So there's some things that, that go beyond what we humans call right and wrong. And this proves the existence of God because there has to be an ultimate moral law giver. I like the example also that uh, C.S. Lewis uses in his book, Mere Christianity, which he has a whole section in that book about the moral argument for God. I like the example he uses that he says the next time you're on a subway and somebody's heading for a seat to sit down, he said, go and jump and sit in that seat in front of him and see how the guy reacts to that. He's probably going to say, oh, that's not fair. You shouldn't have done that. That isn't right for you to do that. That was my seat. And that's kind of, in any culture, you're probably going to get the same response. Oh, that's not fair. You shouldn't have done that. And that's that's a, a moral, an objective moral value that everybody recognizes. Right. And uh, a lot of these, you can get ample books explaining them. They can go in great detail, and probably they can explain them a lot better than I can. Uh, but I found... The compelling ones, the ones that really made an impact on me was like the theological argument, the arg- called an argument from design. The best illustration I know is uh, the classic one of Paley's watchmaker. Mm-hmm. If you stumble upon a watch out in the forest away from civilization and you pick it up and it's one of those intricate watches, finely made, uh, very mechanical with the little gears clicking and all that stuff your reaction is probably not going to be that all these raw materials just happen to come together at the right moment in the right way to the right temperature and they just happen to place themselves within this container in the right method but you're going to think that there was a grand designer of the watch Mm -hmm. a grand watchmaker who thought with intelligence and purpose right and we know that it's not foolproof in the sense that there is objections to the theological, especially from Hume and Kant, but I think that there's some very good counter explanations to these objections that I won't go into, obviously. Uh, but the, the point is that of probability. John Lennox talks about how the probability of everything, the fine-tuning of the universe was 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the 123rd. And since I'm not a math person, that's 10 followed by 123 zeros. Which is virtually impossible. (laughs) Virtually impossible odds. Right. But the important point is it's not impossible. But at what point, probability-wise, do you say, 
hmm. And that's what this argument did for me. It made me say, hmm, there's something to consider here. Mm-hmm. It didn't obliterate my doubts, but it certainly put an anchor in the ground. And then when I got to the cosmological argument, uh, very quickly, that that one basically is a one of causality. And the best way I know of is that uh, a lot of times I read all these different theories how the universe started, parallel universes, bubble universes, the uh, whatever universes. But if there was ever a time when even God did not exist, not even God could poof himself into existence. And that made me realize that you can go back and back and back. Well, we came from aliens. Well, where'd those aliens come from? We came right. from other aliens. Where'd those aliens come from? Right. From the parallel universe. Where'd that come from? And you have to get somewhere, sometime, where someone started it all. You have to get to a first cause somewhere. Ooh, that's right out of the book. <laughs> that's, that's one of my interests in apologetics, actually, has been for years, is the evolution versus creation debate. And a lot of my books are on that subject. Mm. I had doubts about that for years because I would go to church and they would say, you know, well, the Bible is true and whatever. But then I would come home and I'd turn the TV on and I'd see all these TV shows and stuff which are saying, well, evolution is a fact. Yes. You know, we descended from this and we descended from that and it's proven by science. And I was like, this stuff doesn't fit together. What's the problem here? I'm getting two different stories and they're both telling me they're true, but they can't both be true. Right. And I had doubts about that for years. Hmm. And I've read a number of books on that subject, and I have to say that one of the authors that really opened my eyes to what the real arguments are is a guy named Philip Johnson who wrote Darwin on Trial, an excellent book, which I would recommend anybody to read that. His book is about the political influences in our society that cause certain beliefs to rise to the surface, not necessarily because they're true, but because they're popular, and a lot of people in high places say, well, this is true, and everybody else just accepts that. And he goes into the problems with evolution, which you don't hear about a whole lot in the mass media and there are tons of problems with it and the more I read about this the more I I started to realize uh, this isn't as much of a proven fact as some people keep saying it is and um, really um, the evidence for Darwinian evolution is actually very weak but you wouldn't know that from most of our our popular media because they say the opposite. They say, oh, it's been proven. But it hasn't. And when I started to realize there was another side to this argument that was based on science, not on religious beliefs, that's when I started to realize, okay, there's not as much of a problem here as I thought originally. Right. Francis uh, Schaeffer, I've started reading some of his things. And he makes a point how, through the progression of political and cultural things, that we've gotten to the point now where it is believed that it's either science or religion, one right. versus the other. Right. And that is really a recent trend in history, mm-hmm. and that religion 
true religion and science were intermingled mm -hmm. because they supported each other. Right. But that's not the perception today. To say that it's science versus religion is a very, very inaccurate simplification of the whole situation. Correct. It actually cheats you out of the truth. Right. Okay. Uh, let's go on. Um, how about uh, you have a very interesting section in your bio here where you you say that you got to the point where you started thinking to yourself well okay there these these proofs for god sound pretty good but you say maybe i got the god thing right here but i got the religion thing wrong would you care to explain that true uh, and this took out quite a bit of time of studying to uh, i just could not intellectually get away from the logic that God had to exist. It, I just couldn't sweep that away. Mm -hmm. see, now, obviously something else is wrong. As pilots were trained to take in all information, not to exclude information, but right. we're trying to re reach a synthesis of that information. What is all this stuff telling me is the real problem. So To look at both sides of an argument in order uh, to determine which one has more going for it. Right, and actually technically for pilots we're trained that to lock yourself in and then uh, lock out all further evidences and say I know what the problem is and I'm not going not to change my mind has actually resulted in a lot of deaths in aviation. Wow. So we're taught to always keep searching but there comes a point where a pilot has to make a decision. So in this religion quest, this comparative religion, I acknowledge that I'm not a professor. I haven't spent my life researching religion. I have traveled in many of these lands and experienced firsthand these religions, but I'm not an expert yet. I thought, is that going to mean I can't do any type of search? Um, even uh, Leslie Newbigin talks about in his book Proper Confidence that even scientists start with presuppositions. So I knew that I was naturally slanted to wanting Christianity to be true, but I wanted the truth. Right. So I said, I'll try to keep an open mind as much as possible, and one way is I'll study their religions from their viewpoint, not right. study their religions just from a Christian author's viewpoint. Right. So I, I got the Quran, I got books on the Quran, and I acknowledge that I did not know that language, so they say that I can't truly understand it. But to, to be really brief, to cut to the heart of you, it. You've studied a number of religions here, like Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism and you know, all the major ones from the and, sound of it. And some more. But the real part, I wasn't looking to knock off the other religions so mine would be true right but I, which one applies the most to me and that i call it straight to the heart as in when i looked in the mirror when i was honest with myself i didn't like what i saw mm -hmm. the world would call me a goody two-shoe i used to uh say that I would even bring in government pens I found at home. Innocently got there, but I'd bring them in because I didn't want to steal from the government. I know there's right. a joke there, but we won't have time for that. <laughs> but 
Um, I wanted, I know that I might be a good person by the world's standard, but when I looked honestly at myself, I saw selfishness. I saw things coming out of my mouth toward my fellow man, toward my wife, that wasn't right. I knew it was all about me deep inside, mm -hmm. in some ways even shaking my little fist at God. And I knew, I call that the black heart, that that had to be dealt with, that putting a nice coat of white paint over the top wasn't going to do it. Right. It had to be dealt with. What I was looking was for transformation, not renovation, not a new paint job, from a change from the inside out as the song goes. So now it looks like the the conclusion you came to was in studying all these different religions that most of them did not deal with this problem that you're talking about this um, inherent weakness inside of you if we could call it sin which is what Christians call it. Right. These other religions don't really deal with that issue. I always try to show great respect, and not not just patronizingly, but great respect for other religions. My goal isn't to trash them to prove Christianity is true, right. but it is to find what stands head and shoulders above the rest and the figure of Christ, his redemption upon the cross, mm -hmm. taking my place. I just have not found that so prominent in any other religion now that kind of leads into um, um, looking at the bible uh how you perceive the bible as comparing to some of these other holy books and religious writings tell us about uh, the difference that you noticed there and that took a good while too because i try to summarize it in just a minute or two Basically, I knew that I was not a professional theologian, so I wasn't going to strike new ground in uh, biblical authenticity, but I certainly got enough books and did enough studying that I came to the process of finding out that there's great depth to the Word of God, mm -hmm. that it's not just something some bunch of guys whipped up in a back corner you know, recently, but it has history, and it has an authenticity in the sense that there was the original writers, say, of the New Testament, the apostolic writers, and they wrote on things like leather. My one professor called it when the quill hits the sheepskin. But then there was copies made, and these copies were called manuscripts. And we have uh, some complete, but mostly partial fragments of the original manuscripts left, and that these number over 5,000. Mm -hmm. And the closest thing we have to it is Homer's Iliad at 643. Yep. And then I found out that the scribes would, when they made copies, because, you know, if you watch uh, that one film I enjoy, uh, Madagascar <laughs> cartoon, you tell one monkey something, and by the end of the line of the monkeys, it's distorted message. Right. So surely these guys making all these copies, they, they made distortions. But it's right. amazing when you read uh, the historical accounts of how the Jews, especially with the Old Testament, how they copied that document, the incredible um, procedures that they went through that we we have nowhere near the amount of time to go into on this show that that they went through to 
um, make sure that their copies were absolutely accurate copies. Like, for instance, counting the number of letters in a book, not only forwards but backwards to make sure that every letter was there and that it's in the right place. I mean, just their copying techniques were... um, Incredible! Something that we we can't imagine today doing something like that. But they really took this book seriously, and with the New Testament as well, uh, they really believed that they were copying the Word of God, and that they absolutely had to get those copies accurate. Correct. And even um, when we get into what's called the ancient versions, and then the uh, uh, translation versions. All these things have a great, uh, staggering uh, momentum to them and impact. And you really need to get some good books on this and read for yourself. And instead of verses just making a shot from the hip, I've heard many times say that, oh, it's just written by a bunch of men. No. And how did I come to that conclusion for myself was well there was the intellectual side as far as this technical aspect but then my friend Mike Wren said there's also a spiritual side and I think uh, I alluded to my sinful heart earlier uh, just a short story the best typifies this my wife and I were in Orlando once going to meet our kids uh, over we dropped them off uh, Disney World and we were riding the tram and behind me was two grown-ups and two young men, about 19, and the one young man was railing on and on, casting down the Bible and Christianity. (laughs) And I hate to do public uh, interaction thing, like that confrontation. My brother's a cop, and he got all the confrontation genes. But I just had to turn around and say, may I say something? And I just gave a sentence or two about all this we talked about as far as the technical. Mm-hmm. But then I said, the way I know the Bible is the Word of God, it's of God, is that it speaks truly about what I really am inside. But not just that, but it speaks how to deal with it and transform it in a real, genuine way. Mm. And for that, I know it's the Word of God. Um, the young man, of course, is very um, unhappy, and I thought, oh, boy. I'm sure he didn't say, oh, okay, I understand that. Right. <laughs> so, but as I turned around, I saw the mother smiling, and mm-hmm. I thought, ooh, maybe there's more to this story. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and the thing that's kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, notable about this is this period took about three, four years. And uh, as I try to wrap this up, the crazy thing was that the doubts did not go away. The apologetical side, I feel like, were stakes in the ground with ropes tied around that I could not get away from that provided that anchor. But the doubts would not go away. And I thought, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with whatever, why I can't get back to the blissful state? And it wasn't until maybe three, four years ago that I started to think, maybe that's the problem. Uh, Maybe it's the idea of the preconception of God I had that the Christian God, that Jesus Christ is supposed to make your life perfect, pain-free, no problems. Mm -hmm. And as I started to read to contemplate everything that's happened just slowly as that process went through 
I came to realize, and I said this to my one friend, and he, his eyes got real big. I'd like to explain it in just a minute or two. Is I said, the cruelty of God showed the love of God. And he said, what? I said, um, the best way I know to explain it is that Tozer says, before God uses a man greatly, he must hurt that man greatly. So I'm not assuming that I'm being used greatly of God in that sense, but I come to understand that pain and suffering is not the enemy of the Christian, but the Bible said all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. And one could debate— Even doubts, maybe. Especially doubts. And this is the part I get passionate about, especially doubts. Because I remember this time the Bible says it's like you're grappling after God, uh, running after the prize of the high calling of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it almost seemed like God was taking one step back as I grappled and ran after him. And I realize now that I would not trade that period of the blackness for anything because it has changed the way I think about God, way I think about pain and suffering, and that I don't want God to make my life perfect, but what I want above all else, and he's shown me through this, is that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, mm -hmm. and that what felt like God had turned his back on me was actually, I believe now, that God was shaping as one shapens iron in the furnace and the anvil. Mm -hmm. I've heard it said that uh, part of the faith process is doubting. If mm. you don't have any doubts, if you're perfectly comfortable with what you think you know, you're not going to search for anything else. And God wants us to s actively search for him. So uh, the way I would put it is, and I think I'm basically saying the same thing you just said, is that in the, the faith journey, doubts are part of that journey. Yes. The doubts are what encourage you to keep looking for answers and to keep finding those answers and to get closer and closer to the truth. And Whereas if you didn't have any doubts, you wouldn't do any searching. And even if the answers don't come, to stay faithful mm -hmm. and trustworthy to the character of God. Mm -hmm. And I like to throw out the challenge that if you are a believer and the doctor's report came back, or you lost your child, I'm not going to insult you and give a quick answer, religious slogan, try and take away, mm -hmm. but let me encourage you to stay committed. But lastly, if you are a skeptic or a died and rule atheist, I like to challenge you. Mm -hmm. Open mind. Get these books, many good books, Evidence Demands a Verse, Ravi Zacharias, Can Man Live Without God? Mm -hmm. And go, as Anth the scientist Anthony Flew said, go where the evidence leads you. Read it, study yourself, mm -hmm. see what you think with an open mind. That's a great way to conclude our program today. Uh, this is Kirk Hastings, and this has been Evidence for Faith. And we've been speaking to Kevin Harold. A very interesting interview. Thanks, Kevin, for being in today. Thank you. Uh, I think it was a great show. And uh, that's it for today, and we will see you next week. But until then, always remember the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.